Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a Daily Planet Productions podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, wild bows return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and this is my obsidian statue duplicate, Scott Daly. Am I... am I alive? Do... do I exist? Only when I'm not talking. Oh my god. Then I... then I must never... I must never stop talking. Fortunately, that won't be a problem for me, because, as you said, this is the podcast where you and I eagerly dive into Wildbo's world of crystal surfboards, handsy supervillains, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, part two of Arc 6 Pitch, covering chapters 6.4 and 6.5, and we've got a couple of really good chapters here, Matt. Um, There are some weeks in this thing where I'm like a little worried about whether or not we're going to have enough to talk about to fill a whole episode worth. Um, this is not one of those. There's there's a lot of stuff going on in these chapters, and there's a lot to really dive into and dissect. Yeah, these are some, like on the one hand, particularly great uh, uh, battles where you could, like, you you felt the ebb and flow and the tension and the drama of the fighting, and also simultaneously character moments among like eight different characters were being doled out right and left. And uh, it was, it was really, I actually like both of these chapters were ones where I just like rushed through them the first time because I was so like tense and so, so into it Um, which of course is not, does not make for good analysis, but the first time through, I definitely had to just like know what happened, you know, as quickly as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think they're especially 6.5, particularly well-written. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on in that chapter, a lot of very emotional um, realization-type things, mm-hmm. and I think the writing really supports um, the importance of the moment. And there we're going to get to one moment in particular that I think might be my favorite uh, section of the book so far. Uh, so I, I, can't, I can't wait to talk about it. Yeah, me too. All right, just... Uh quick announcement uh if anyone didn't notice the weaver dice trailer that came out we're starting a weaver dice campaign um the first episode will probably come out next week um i i honestly wish that we could have recorded the first episode sooner but uh it it is actually really difficult to schedule four people and frankly that's probably going to continue to be an issue but uh we, we are we're you know it's coming out so um, and, and currently we're planning on recording sessions every other week. Uh, we may up that frequency, but we may not. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> it's one of those things where kind of like with, we've got worm, we have to just do it and see how it falls out and, uh, yeah. how, how it works into our lives. Yeah. Um, we, so we do for those, those of you that don't know, we do another podcast, uh, we're just like our movie focused podcast. Um, we are tentatively looking at maybe switching that to an every other week schedule to make room to do this because we record those on Sunday nights and Sunday night just happens to be the night that all four of us are normally free. So that would be a perfect time to record this. So we're looking into maybe um, alternating those every other week and seeing how that goes. Uh, One of the other big unknowns here is we don't know how long it's going to take to edit these things. Um, It's not something we've ever done before. So we want to put the production value into it. We want to uh, trim the fat as it were and 
that could take way longer than we think it will. So um, even it, we're, we're shooting to record the first episode this coming Sunday. When does that mean the episode's going to come out? I don't know. Um, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> it could be as early as Tuesday. I'm not going to say Monday. It could be as early as no. Tuesday. Um, it could be as late as Friday um, or maybe not even that week where we're kind of just playing it by ear here. But uh, it is happening. I think the response to that little teaser you put together was really inspiring, Matt. Like it really made me excited to do this thing because like it's one of those things where you're like, I think this is good, but... I don't know if they're gonna. And uh, for the most part, the, the response is really positive. So thanks. Thanks for those of you that listened and, and let us know what you thought. Um, we're hoping to keep up the level of quality you saw in that, that teaser throughout the whole thing. I think it's gonna be a fun experience. Yeah, I, I certainly hope so. Everyone seems excited. Yeah. And we got a bunch of questions on it. And I think we're going to use like the first episode to uh, answer a bunch of those questions as we're like setting up what the game is and who our characters are and We'll answer all those questions then. So if you asked us something and we haven't answered yet, look for that in the first episode. Yep, that's right. Cool. All right, moving on to the community spotlight where we read what people wrote from last week's Reddit thread. Uh, the discussion question from last week was uh, pick a character you're interested in to, and, and talk about some facet of their character that's interesting to, to you. You know, it could be their trauma, their personality, um, really any anything from a writing characterization standpoint. Um, first, Megafire writes about Carol, unsurprisingly. <gasps> I'm shocked. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and Megafire says, uh, they always thought that the Amy situation was awful and was basically forced on Carol. And Carol being a terrible mother to her adopted daughter wasn't really her fault. But the more we see of her interaction with Victoria and the more we learn about that, the more we see that she wasn't a great mother to her either. Her seemingly uh, disinterested behavior toward Victoria's non-cape achievements and more recently her using psychological abuse tactics on Victoria in order to teach her about, um, you know, about how to be a better, a better cape. This behavior makes sense when you look at it in the lens of Carol's trigger, though, because she doesn't trust people. So the only way to survive is to learn to control them. And to quote Megafire, trust, safety, control. Carol's life revolves around these three things, and her desperate grasp for the latter two, combined with her lack of the former, has destroyed her family and left her absolutely alone. A great comment uh, from our re resident Carol expert, Megafire, mm -hmm. as always. Um, I really like that. I when we uh, when we had the idea to this question, I I knew that's what Megafire was going to do, and I was but I was worried because I was like, well, we haven't seen a lot of Carol recently. There's been other things going on. Will there be enough to talk about? Um, foolish me, of course there is. <laughs> yeah, and and this is of course a really interesting comment. Um, I I the the only thing that kind of snags at me is is referring to um what Carol's doing as psychological abuse tactics. And, and that suggests a level of intentionality behind what Carol's doing. Whereas I almost feel like Carol can't help herself. Yeah. But I guess you could say that doesn't make it not psychological abuse. Um, yeah. 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 I, I don't think I, I didn't get from the, the, what he wrote that that was intended, that it was intended mm -hmm. to, to show a intentional type of psychological abuse, but just like, I need to protect you because the world is awful and, and everyone is terrible. And here's what I learned. Mm -hmm. Right, right. All right. Next, we had Joe Stitch 
um, who picked Victoria and used Victoria as kind of a reflection of the overall theme of Ward of recovery. So they say that Victoria is a perfect example of the desire after experiencing a severe trauma to attempt to revert to a state of normalcy. Um, Victoria clings to old rules, wants capes and cape conflict to operate under those old rules, even when it's kind of clear that they don't seem to apply. Um, The one thing that they pointed out that I really liked was even things like the cape trivia Victoria studies is proven to no longer be applicable by Veilfor's new voice power. So once again, we're we're using, it's a great example of using old rules and old standards that no longer apply because Veilfor has changed. Um, but, but Joe Stidge also says that there's another side to recovery, um, this realization that you can't go back to normal, but you can build a new normal. And they say that Victoria reflects this as well. She kind of admits that her old life is gone when she returns to, to being a cape. She doesn't resume her old identity, but instead works towards building a new one. Um, they also point out her declining Amy's offer to remove those old memories instead of hoping to learn from them and, and to become a better person. Uh, based off of of that experience. And then lastly, they say, like Victoria, the world has been broken and is trying to pull itself together again. Like Victoria, people are learning that no matter how hard they try, things aren't ever going to be the same. But perhaps, like Victoria, they can find a way to make the new normal even better than the original. It will be a long road full of painful missteps, but recovery always is. And I like that a lot. Yeah, this is a great comment and a great sentiment. I, I don't know who it was who first said this or, or, or noticed this, but the idea that the theme of Worm was trauma and the theme of Ward is going to be recovery from trauma um, or, or one of the themes, that's very beautiful, and I love that. Yeah. Uh, Googleplex Byte uh, writes about Victoria and power classification. They say, I like how Victoria is trying to drill into her head uh, the notion that she's a thinker one. Her brute classification seems to be a big part of how she used to approach things. Now she's going for the warrior monk thing, and she's trying to classify her powers in a way that makes it fit, so that being a warrior monk is part of her base identity, making it a natural conclusion to her power set, so it stops being what she ought to be and starts being what she is. Yeah, that's very cool. And that's um, something I think we're going to bring up throughout this chapter is that idea um, of the thinker one, which is something that she's said about herself a couple times now that that her her uh, eagle eye fly up in the sky and, and look around power. She considers a thinker power, which uh, is, is a pretty, pretty great characterization moment for Victoria, I think. Yeah, she's definitely leaning on that a lot and, and leaning on her situational awareness mm-hmm. so that she can strike more surgically. Yeah. All right. Lastly, uh, Stuck in Reddit Factory picked Contessa and used Contessa as kind of a reflection of the protagonists in Worm and maybe possibly Ward. Um, Contessa and Cauldron are the the ideal uh, wrong things for the right reasons uh, theme personified. Both, And then they, they go on to say that both Contessa and Taylor offer two of humanity's potential responses to an intractable threat. That is to be maximally effective on uh, Cauldron and Contessa's side and everyone working together on Taylor's side. Um, and he also mentioned that it wasn't an accident that these two people who took different approaches to this threat um, meet at the very end of the novel to talk about the reasons behind their different approaches. And I, I agree with that. Um, Stuck in Reddit Factory then kind of carries this forward into Ward and wonders if uh, Contessa, now now resuming her Fortuna uh, 
persona will will continue to offer a reflection of the protagonist of Ward. Maybe we'll we'll see whatever she's doing in her quasi retirement, if she's even in the story, um, could be a reflection of uh, a different a different way to approach recovery from the way, way that Victoria is doing. And I, that's an interesting thought, and I think that's something we'll have to uh, pay attention to. Yeah, that, that's an awesome observation. I love it. This this take that Contessa is like this theme personified. And I mean, her, her power is sort of a plot device yeah. uh, turned into power form. And, and that was always one of the clever things about the bare humans world is that powers are kind of treated that way. And this is a great take on Contessa. Yeah, absolutely. So there was a there was another thread that you wanted to mention, Scott. Yeah, um, there was a thread, I, I forget when it was posted, maybe the past couple of days, talking about how, uh, just just generally asking the question, is the subreddit and therefore kind of the worm community at a whole, as a whole overly obsessed with the entities and the shards and how they play into character actions, decisions, and choices? And I wanted to bring this up just because we kind of touched on this very lightly in last week's episode. Um, we were talking about the idea that um, we don't want to push too much onto the shard to where it takes the agency away from the character um, and they that these two things um, don't have to be mutually exclusive. It doesn't have to be this is the shard versus this is the human. We need to think these uh, at these the shard serves as a metaphor for the trauma and therefore we can see that how um, the things that happen to us push us in a certain direction and, and nudge us to a certain sort of behavior. But we shouldn't forget that. Um, the decisions that are being made are still central to who the characters are as people. And I think that what I saw in the response to this thread was that that a general agreement with that sentiment that um, the entities are important. The shards are important. They're clearly going to be an important part of this story as well. But um, to to not go too far into that to the point that uh, we lose who the characters are and we and we sh- like push off blame or push off um, traits or decisions or choices um, to the, the the entity and away from uh, our our characters, right? The, the entities are are this perfectly elegant kind of sci fi explanation for why we are allowed to have this superhero story in the first place, and and have it make sense and feel credible um, in ways that many other superhero properties are not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it. I think it is probably a, a mistake to just think think about everything in terms of that science fiction justification when that's really I think probably the correct function for it. The correct function for it is as a as a justification, as a sci-fi backdrop, not as um the the thing to focus on. Yeah, and I think going forward, seeing how the shards and how the entities are used in this story, we need to I think instead of maybe focusing on them as just that that plot device try to search for the meaning behind that what is what is that what does that say about our characters what does that say about the world what does that say about what what ward is trying to say as a whole um how how do whatever's happening with the shards how do these broken triggers how do how does the broken cycle reflect um the overall message of the book and i think that's that's the part that i think is okay to to, to focus on the shards with um mm-hmm not getting into like the nitty gritty of, of is she doing this specifically because the shard said so, or is this her decision? That kind of stuff. Yeah. All of that said, I'm very curious to learn about what is different with the shards now that Sion is dead. That's sure. That's, that's going to be really interesting. Um, but that's a separate thing from what we're talking about, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But again, what, like how, 
what is different with the shards now that Sion is dead, but carry that forward. How does that difference tie into the themes of the book? Right, right, exactly. All right, uh, let's move on into chapter 6.4. So picking up right where, where we left off, the fallen soldiers come screaming down the hill toward Victoria and the patrol block. Several of the fallen capes hang back to protect Mama, and Victoria reflects on the power synergies that Mama has managed to build up over time. Later on in this chapter, she'll wonder about why so many fallen have such good powers. Uh, so I think this is something that we should be wondering about, too. Yeah, I think it's interesting to kind of look here as we start off um, to examine how the writing leads you to those kind of conclusions. Like the book wants you to be thinking about certain things and wants to, to guide you to certain conclusions when it wants those things to be clear. And I think we see here kind of how it's doing that. And and this ties into something we talked about last week where I had pointed out to you that, hey, um, this this beating the drum about the color coding of of Fallen seems like so so obvious and explicit that that it seems like some sort of setup and i don't think it is a setup in the way i meant it like that it was going to pay off in some kind of subversion way i think what this is doing is priming us to understand exactly which capes are for which sect and that ties into how much we understand and know about the fallen and as we as we grow to understand who this organization is or what this organization is um and knowing which capes are for which one is really important to that. So the text kind of primes us for that. And, and I think that really ties into these two chapters because our knowledge of the fallen will continue to grow, um, which will culminate in a, a big question at the end of these chapters that a choice that Victoria has to make based on these guys might be way more serious and way more powerful than we thought they were. And all this stuff, all the, the things that are happening, the, the questioning of, of how, how do these people have so many good powers? How are they able to recruit people? Um, how, which people are for the Mathers sect versus the Crowley sect? All this stuff ties into this, this overall understanding we're being given of something's, something's really, really crazy about these guys. It, more than just this is just a, a small settlement on the edge of town. Yeah, I think coming into these chapters, one might have the impression that like, okay, we're going to we're going to wipe out these Mathers and then we're going to be done with the fallen part of Ward. And it's become apparent by the end of these two chapters that we're probably not going to be done with the fallen uh, after after this battle is resolved. Yeah. yeah, I certainly thought that I certainly thought it was a, a great primer to into the idea of uh, second chances and, and redemption and recovery and how. Uh, what people are deserving of that and what people aren't. It seemed like a perfect way into that discussion. And then when we could abandon to, to move on to other things, but no, you're absolutely right. It seems like we're, we're sticking with this thing for the time being. Yeah. Well, they're a great foil to Victoria and the kind of hero she is, particularly now that she's taking on this like angel hero theme. Absolutely. Yeah. Demons and angels. Oh yeah. Yeah. It works. Yeah. So as the battle commences, Ashley, who is there but not yet fighting, asks permission from Gilpatrick to join the fight. He refuses to give that permission, not necessarily because he doesn't want her to fight, but because he refuses to just issue a blanket sanction on whatever happens if she joins in. Yeah, um, probably a good call on his part, but holy shit, Matt, how huge of a moment is this for Ashley? Like, 
when we last left her, she had lost control. She had killed someone. And then for, for a brief moment after this, she seemed like she was just going to rationalize it away. Like she was just going to posture and just like embrace the villain side and say, well, he, I had to do that, blah, blah, blah. But that's not what she does. She separates herself from the situation. And now we learn she's turned herself into the patrol block. And more than that, she's submitting not only has she turned herself into them but she's fully submitting herself to their authority she will not act without without their permission and i think i think we can definitively conclude now that what she did really messed her up and while i am still worried about her um worried about how she's going to handle all this stuff i look at this as a pretty positive sign that that she's taking the steps necessary to to correct or or make sure that 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 the the mistake she made doesn't happen again. Yeah, there are basically two ways she could have reacted, right? She could have been like, oh, I screwed up. I, I killed somebody. All right, fuck it. I guess I'm a villain now. Or she could have been like, okay, I need to really redouble my efforts and, and my conviction and seriousness about about trying to be a hero um, and or, or at least not being someone who snaps and kills someone, yeah. um, someone who's in control of herself. Yeah. And uh, you're exactly right. This is a great sign that, that she's actually on the right track. Yeah. I mean, Ashley did not seem like the type of person that would go to some other system of authority and ask permission. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is that is a change. Absolutely. And I think yeah. it's overall a good one. Yeah. So Victoria now uh, picks up a big heavy rock and then she flies with it using it as a shield should we have like a 30 minute conversation about how the rock is probably heavier than she says it is? Um, no, no. Okay. No. Okay. Um, it, so as she's flying, she thinks fights were about information first, positioning second, action third. And this is where she refers to her flight as a faux thinker one power, which she may have done before, but I definitely noticed it this time, especially in the context of like, of like, thinking intelligence planning situational awareness being how she now views kind of the cornerstone of her outlook and and strategy absolutely and i think from everything we saw in worm i think her uh order of importance is pretty spot on right i think the reason why taylor was able to be so successful is because she was like really good at at being able to gather information and scout the field and know where people are and what they were doing um as well as positioning and so that's a pretty, pretty smart observation from Victoria. And I love like we don't think of Victoria as the the old Victoria very often, like the person that was really connected to the PRT, the person that that um, was really involved with the legal um, approved heroing that happened back in Worm. So it, it makes sense that she would refer to power classifications and she would assign power level numbers to thing. I'm actually kind of surprised that she hasn't done this more over the course of the book so far that she hasn't like classified someone as um, a power level or mentioned power levels as much. Um, But then again, she wasn't like ever like officially part of the protectorate. I don't think so. I guess that kind of makes sense, but yeah, I mean, based on my understanding of, of the reason you would do that in the first place would be like to give someone else a sense of exactly exactly what they were going up against or exactly what measures they should have prepared. And since her team isn't on the same page, she wouldn't be like, oh, that's a breaker uh, six because yeah. that's not going to mean anything to them. 
Um, so, you know, I, I mean, I, I do I understand what you're saying, though, that like in her thought processes, um, I, I like I bet she could do it if she had to, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So this bowl, this, this rock she's carrying, she uses it as a bowling ball uh, and tosses it or rather she lets it roll uh, and quote unquote demolishes some dudes uh, who are carrying weapons. And she thinks to herself, the warrior monk would have been fine with it um, due to the fact that they were armed, basically. Then she starts laying in the people at close range with the wretch and with her own body. Yeah. Um, so we're seeing throughout this part of the battle that Victoria is basically going right up to the line of going all out. And she is making a lot of justifications for why this is OK. Uh, one of the things she mentions is that is that the police would have been licensed to open fire on these people at this point, which is true. And I don't think that the book is telling us that Victoria is wrong for using the force that she is, um, though I, I do think that her throwing a giant rock at people is pretty, pretty clever callback to that time where she threw a dumpster at someone in the, mm-hmm. in the beginning of Worm. But but I, I don't I don't think that the book wants us to conclude, hey, she's acting. To an overly violent, inappropriate level, that's not that's not what I think the book is saying, but but. This idea that the warrior monk would have been fine with it. I think that is where Victoria is lying to herself. And and I think it's to the point where, like, she describes some of the the violence that she's doing. Like, there's this line where she says the wretch and I relieved him of the burden of having to carry a rifle and having unbroken hands, which is like a cool, quippy thing to say. Um, and I'm not weighing in on like the morality of the move to destroy someone's hands with a gun. Cause obviously the person has a gun and they could hurt you, but it's, it's like the way she describes that violence is it's so like blase. Um, yeah. And I think the the thing about this that is so interesting to me is Victoria has now externalized the different parts of her. Um, there was actually someone on, on Twitter, Asgar Zeigel, um, that pointed this out while I was doing my live read. So, so credit to them, um, that Victoria is externalizing the warrior monk here. Like the, the, the warrior monk would be okay with it. Um, and, and it's almost like she's doing it because she knows that she's failing to live up to it. And I think that's absolutely right. That is, that is what she's doing. And the idea of externalizing a portion of her is not something that's new to Victoria. She does it with the wretch all the time. And I think what that leaves us with is a character that is has two different sides of her, her, her being, and she's now kind of externalizing both of them. The, the monk side and the wretch side are both not in her. She's pushed them out. And where does that leave Victoria? Yeah, that, that's really fascinating that, that she almost has these two poles, like the, the monk representing what she views as her best self or, 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 you know, the, the, the version of her that's able to make the right decision all the time and remain cool all the time. And the wretch, which just represents everything she sees about er, er, like all of the, all of the worst things about herself as she is now personified, like her, her trauma personified literally. Um, and yeah. And yeah, also, I, I, also the worst part about, her old self as well mm-hmm. like she was she was overly violent overly brutal back in her in her old old cape days um and that's and that's what the wretch is now mm-hmm. yeah definitely um i i don't know I, I don't see it as bad that she has um 
I'm going to use the word personified rather than externalized, not because I necessarily disagree with externalized, but once you personify these two poles, then at least she can get a handle on what she's doing in the moment and ask herself, am I being, am I being true to my best self by way of comparing it to this yardstick, which is the warrior monk, which clearly in her mind is a very clear thing, or at least I hope so, because otherwise, <laughs> other, otherwise that's, that's also kind of risky. That's something that, that, that may be a tangent, but it, it's interesting that what, what is the warrior monk? Like she's, she does, she hasn't, it's not like she's defined the warrior monk. It's not like she sat down like with a piece of paper and written down, like here's my warrior monk code yeah. with 10 bullet points enumerated these are my rules that i don't break the warrior monk is is an ethos but it's not actually concretely defined by victoria no it's more of a feeling than a a definitive set of standards yeah and that gives it a little bit of room for slippage yep which is something to pay attention to maybe but i think the, the the coolest thing about this is that this is a perfect way to illustrate victoria's ongoing identity crisis because she has these two things that and i think i think you're right that personified might be a better word um that she has these two different parts of herself and right now she doesn't consider herself either there's the warrior monk and there's the wretch and neither of those are her in her mind but but they are like Mm -hmm. (laughs) like the, the the warrior monk she is part warrior monk she is part wretch and the more she externalizes those personifications, the more she's kind of left stuck in the middle in this limbo between them. And I think that's just a perfect way to to characterize what a identity crisis looks like. Yeah, I mean, you're right that it's dangerous to have such a stark dichotomy because then you run the risk of, oh, I failed to live up to the warrior monk, therefore I am the wretch. Yeah, which is not not that's not being fair to yourself as a human being because we we never live up to our highest ideals. Sure, yeah. Well, and right now she seems she doesn't consider herself either. Remember, mm-hmm. like she's she's the warrior monk would would be okay with this. The wretch is definitely different. She'd never so far um, call that a part of herself. Yeah. Um. So she just kind of she's kind of in limbo and. I don't know. I, I I think I think you're right that that doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing, but um, it's just it's just like when you're trying to find yourself and you consider yourself different from all these other things that it, it just it's a little messy. Yeah, I agree. Um, so speaking of of all of all of this, this idea of externalizing and personifying the wretch, this is the first time that I've noticed that she refers to the wretch as she in her thoughts. Yeah, and I can't say that I've been paying close of a, enough attention to that throughout the entire story so far to like say yes you are right or no you are wrong um that she's used she before, but I know in this chapter for sure um it's it 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 until mm. this one moment where it's she and the one moment where it's she is the moment that it gets a little too far and digs its its fingers into someone's chest. Yeah, no, I mean, I think this, I think this is intentional and significant in, in this sense of, you know, on on some level, what is healthy to do with trauma is to kind of absorb it into your being in a way that is no longer painful. And she's doing the opposite in the sense that she's now named it, like she, it, it's such, it, it's it's an other to the extent that that mm-hmm. it's it's named and it has a gender. Um, 
So that's not, um, to, to my mind, that is not the path toward integration with and and peace with her trauma. No, I think I think you're right there. Yeah. Um, the more it's like it's it's moving up the steps of personification. You know, mm-hmm. it's not first it's it's a separate thing, but it's just it's like an amorphous entity. It doesn't. And now, yeah, she's she's giving characteristics to it. She's gendered it now. Um, and I wonder if I mean, the, the gendering of it makes sense because it looks kind of like her and it is her. Um, I wonder if that's significant, though. Right. I mean, because I mean, really, it's it's a shard, so it's genderless. So the fact right. that she has given it a gender. Well, OK, that's interesting, because that almost implies that she is seeing it as something like her rather than something alien. I don't know. I don't know how to take that exactly. Yeah. It's really fascinating, yeah. though. It is. Absolutely. It's fun to speculate on anyway. Yeah. From just one word. That's what That's we do. Specialty. That's yeah. what we do. <laughs> yep. Um, so at this point in the battle, Victoria feels a powerful hate so strong that she thinks that it might be from a power, uh, but uh, it, it's it's not. It's it's just prompted by the sight of the bloody wounds created by the wretch fingernails. Yeah, and I I pulled the entire quote. I don't know if we want to read it. <laughs> I really wish we could. Um, it's so good. <laughs> like yeah. It's so it's so good. Yeah, I mean, it, you you can read whatever parts of it you want. Like basically, first she she goes over, she, she's she's really getting philosophical here as she thinks about it. She thinks about the hate that she felt when she was basically shut down and told that her opinions weren't valid when she was when she was younger. She she hated. Um, uh, it, it's 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 she compares it to the hate that she felt for her sister when her sister broke her brain and she basically had to twist the passionate devoted love that she was feeling into passionate hate so that she could keep control of herself. And then she hates the wretch in the same way because that's what it represents and the loss of control of it. And then she hates all the people who she's just physically demolished. Mm -hmm. Um, Quote, uh, I think this is the key quote here. I hated that when I'd had the ability to be gentle, I hadn't been. And now that I wanted to be gentle, I couldn't. Yeah. And and then to top it off, I hated the fallen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all this is great. Um, that I think you're right that 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 last one is key to the whole thing. But I do like I do like the, the writing here is especially good because to establish how strong this feeling is, we start off by declaring it a a power, right? The feeling hit me so suddenly and so unexpectedly that I thought it might have been one of Rain's cluster mates. So, like, this is such a strong, sudden feeling that it seems artificially generated. It can't be coming from me. There's no way. It's too, su- it's too sudden, too soon, too quick, and too strong to be just something that exists inside of me. But, no, it, it is. And and we get to we get to learn so much more about her throughout this little thing because she talks about this this kid in class that she fought with who was being a racist asshole and it, it kind of clues us into why she was so violent with that Empire eighty eight person because this is something she felt very passionate about even as a kid and and like he referred to her as a, a pretty privileged white girl so now she's getting. Um, she's getting sexism thrown her way and she's not being taken seriously. Like there's so many, there's so many things happening to her right now. And uh, the Amy stuff, of course, is just insanely important. Um, 
And I like how I don't know if she's been or not, not not within my memory that she's been quite as honest about the parts of what Amy did to her and why they were so impactful. Like this, this idea that she says she'd broken something intrinsic in me. She tore she had torn open emotional doors I had really wanted to protect and be tender with so soon after I had lost Dean. So it's it's not just um, it's not just that. Amy manipulated her emotions and, and made her f- feel feelings for herself. It's that she she took a part of her that she had closed down due to her grief and her loss, and she planted something new there herself um, when Victoria was not ready. Like the, the, she had she had closed that part that emotional part off to her because she couldn't take it yet. She was still grieving. She was still dealing with the loss of a person she loved. And here comes Amy. Is like, nope, get over him now. It's my turn. And man like this is so this is so brutally honest yeah this is one of those thoughts that i don't think she could have thought in her head until until more recently because it wasn't until recently that she wasn't even thinking amy's name at all and and she couldn't talk about anything related to this without like losing control of her body i know Um, remember the first arc where, where like just thinking about amy almost like she like went catatonic yeah Right. She, yeah, she would like zone out. Um, and, and this is, yeah, so th- this is, this is a bit of honesty. You know, she's not, she's not telling us this, right? She's, she's almost telling herself this. She's yeah, yeah. having a little moment here. I also think it's fascinating how she lists all these things together where she's comparing all these hates and these are all reasonably, some, some of them are, are connected that like the wretch and, and Amy are connected to each other, but most of these things are not connected. And I think that's an interesting thing about human psychology is we're actually pretty bad about doing this where where we drag all of the negative shit in our lives together into a big pile and just like make ourselves feel worse about it and like it's all related and that it all means something when it doesn't usually yeah it doesn't like that we that like part of cognitive behavioral therapy is learning not to do that actually (laughs) So um, it, it, it's interesting that it's that she's doing it here, actually. Yeah, you're absolutely right, because what does her wretch digging into some guy's chest have to do with that time that racist asshole in high school dismissed my opinions because I was a, a pretty girl? Um, th- there's no real connection there other than the emotional tie. The only right. the only connection there is these extreme anger and hatred. And so, she, yeah, she's linking all these things together um, that don't necessarily apply. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and this is a very human thing to do. Sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah we're, I don't think I don't want to come off like we're judging her like, oh, Victoria, you're doing this thing again. No, it's just she's she's dealing with some shit and yeah. she's really frustrated. She like she keeps ping ponging back and forth between like feeling useless. Like I feel I am not getting anything done. I'm not doing anything. And then when she does feel useful, it's like, oh, and here we go again. Now I feel like. I've, I'm I'm losing the warrior monk. I'm being too violent. I I hate this. I hate. I wanna I wanna be this controlled, calm person that's saving the good people. I want to be this gentle hero, and I can't now. And it's driving me insane. And it's making yeah. me hate everything, including myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Good point. Yeah. So um yeah so so basically in this rampage she goes on here she defeats the untowered fallen. And then she verbally threatens them further, clearly showing her anger. 
But before she can really kind of lock down the victory, she's ambushed by a fast-moving cape. It's a young Crowley woman, it looks like, with a Leviathan theme to her costume. Her power involves switching off with the duplicate, where only one of the two is active at a time, and the other is seemingly an invulnerable statue. The attack is literally cutthroat. The woman tries to garrot her, and it's only Victoria's spiky, wretch-like costume that saves her from having her throat cut. Oh, like it's symbolism. I get yeah. it. No, it's it's small little tiny beats like that that I absolutely love. Um, that it's 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 not even explicitly spelled out for you. It's just like yeah, the the cord doesn't get around her neck because her costume's there. The costume that was specifically made to look like the wretch. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Also, like in her internal monologue, she mentions the the garrot, and then says, "Not not my teammate." <laughs> right. <laughs> It's not that one. Yeah, it's just so we're clear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Victoria fights the woman for a bit, seemingly roughly evenly matched, getting in a few minor licks, but also taking some solid hits, including one to the head. Ashley then swoops into the rescue, reminding her that Rain needs help and they can't dawdle. Victoria then asks the fallen woman if her duplicate is actually alive, and the woman doesn't answer. She then tries to garrot Ashley, and Ashley blows away the duplicate, which effectively wins the fight. So hopefully uh, it wasn't alive. <laughs> yeah, my first thought was like, I wonder if that was another K-70 type thing. I wonder if that was your sister. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, if, I don't. I, do, I feel like it, there would have been more significance to that moment had that been true. I, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I do I do love Ashley's entrance here. Like, so she's gotten her warning from Gilpatrick that any behavior she does here will be noted, good or bad, and and reported good or bad. But she doesn't just step in here to do violence. Like, she's not here just to, like, work out some aggression, just to blow shit up. That's not what she's doing here. The first thing she says to Victoria when she drops in is, R needs help. Rain needs help. I just mm -hmm. heard he needs help. I'm coming to help you out so we can get to him. So she's back in action now because her team needs her that's fucking awesome yeah and that's like the best possible outcome of of this whole oops i blew a hole in a guy's chest thing yeah this this action scene we just kind of blown through because that's kind of what we tend to do with action scenes but this mm -hmm. was a really excellently written paced tense action scene i love the moment when ashley comes in i love them kind of tag teaming this this uh this cape um and the dialogue and just everything about this yeah so now that they've defeated the fallen aaron now tries to supply some information on where rain might be and her dad acts like a complete cock about it um aaron though kind of stands up to him but unfortunately she, she can't really offer much yeah, but the good news is that at least we we seem to see that um, the the Aaron that had kind of um, let herself be absorbed by the fallen and like like kind of given up on ever resisting the fallen seems to be gone here. Like this one is is spouting off about how these it was all like they've li they've been lying to us. Everything was a lie, and of course our parents don't seem to be into it. But maybe maybe this the events of this day have. have finally pushed Aaron to where she realizes she needs to get the shit out of here. Um, so that's good. Maybe. Yeah. And this is definitely a step up from, uh, then fucking die rain. Yeah, um, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. 
So Victoria now checks in with Gilpatrick, and Ashley tells her that she's going to stay and protect these people. Protect like a real human being and a real hero. From uh, it's from Drive. Everyone, yeah. Matt. Moving, moving on without further comment. Um, <laughs> Matt really wanted everyone to understand that reference, so I had yeah. to, I had to do that. It's a great film, by the way. Um, I don't want to get overly excited about this, but I, but I am. Um, this is this is the best like possible outcome for. Oh shit! I just killed a guy. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, she's still struggling. And kind of reeling with the things that she did. Like, I'm sure that's still going on. She's going to have to deal with this stuff. But like we said before, she seems very aware that she fucked up and she's actively working towards taking steps to make sure that that mistake does not happen again. And knowing when when she should go forward, when she should drive into the fight, when she should stay back and help people. Um, that's that's so that's so different from the posturing cocky Ashley that we've seen before and I mean who knew that like killing some guy might have been the best thing for her <laughs> she just needed to get it out of her system there you go yeah um so that so so now you know n- now that we've kind of hit like a inflection point in this chapter Victoria takes stock she looks over everyone and, and she thinks so many people didn't look like the ones I'd known Arian and Ashley both lacked the confidence they should have. Gilpatrick looked more like the grizzled soldier than, than the teacher. Even the fallen, well, they'd been threats, and now the most aggressive and armed of them were on the ground, defenseless, making noises of pain. I didn't look like the me I wanted to be, probably. So soon after donning my new pretty costume, this other me took to the air, flying against the falling rain, so, the, so that the gentle patter became something sharp in the brief ascent. Yeah, so she's uh, externalizing herself again, Matt, this other me. Um, so she's not the wretch, she's not the monk, and she's not even this person. Yeah. It's, yeah, like, this, this, it's this perfect, like, searching for yourself, searching for who you want to be and, and what you are. I, I love it. I love it. And I love this idea that, look around, everyone, this, this event has changed everyone. Aaron, Ashley, Gilpatrick, even the fallen, um, th- this everyone has felt what has happened here in some way or another, some physically because their legs are broken, um, some emotionally, some mentally, but everyone is hurt. Mm hmm. And <laughs> what a wonderful segue as she goes to find rain. Yay. Um, actually, not quite. Not quite. So, yeah, she calls the rest of the team as she flies seeking rain. Uh, Kenzie is is uh, presumably relieved to learn that Mama isn't dead. I find it very interesting that you read that as relief because I'm not so sure. Um, like we spent the entire last chapter ta- like building this lo- this like tense level of concern for Kenzie's well-being. Um, we finished the chapter with her dropping cameras on people's heads. And so I read it as maybe like a, 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 a disappointment. Like I was hoping that I had killed her there. Um, Ashley killed someone. Rain killed someone. I want to be part of the killing people club. Uh, uh, that's what I read to this. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it, that that's very interesting. I, I think it just entirely depends on what your read of where Kinsey is and who Kinsey is uh, it indicates. And I, I don't, I don't even really want to argue in the sense that I that I would argue for my interpretation. It's just like when I when I think like about Kinsey, I'm like, oh, I, I bet she, I bet she was like felt like she had to do that, and then felt really weird or, or, and, or bad about the fact that she might've killed someone um, because that's how a normal person would react, honestly. <laughs> but perhaps your thesis is that Kenzie is not a normal person. I mean, here's the thing. I, it's probably somewhere in between those two things. Like I, I think, I think part of her um, is relieved that she didn't kill a person, but part of her was hoping that she had made this big, huge impact on the battle and this permanent impact on the battle. And yeah, um, I don't yeah. know. I guess we'll see. Yeah, I just I am so afraid for her after the events of that chapter. I can't get that out of my head. I can't get this idea of, of the slow like build of like stress that she seems to be under, like with her. The person she cared about most has now done this horrible thing. And I don't know. I don't know. I just I, I, I'm so worried about poor Kenzie. Yeah, there does seem to be like um, some intentionality to this element that we haven't actually seen her like. Physically. We we just hear her on the phone. We don't really know how she's doing. We just know how she comes off as. Yeah. That's interesting. So Capricorn and Vista are apparently flying around narwhal style, meaning they're riding one of her force fields, the direction being controlled by Vista's space warping power. Victoria then uses her aura um, to help home in on her allies, which is a fun little power trick. And then they do an aerial rendezvous. Yeah, it's all really fun power stuff here. Like Vista's controlling the the surf crystals by warping space because they usually just go in one direction. But she's like warping space to make them turn and stuff. The the aura locate is really cool. And then this like midair maneuver where she catches them and, and sets them down or drops them down because she's still got a bullet hole in her arm, Matt. We can't right. forget about the fact that her arm has a hole in it. Yeah. Yeah, throughout the rest of these chapters, I'm not I'm not gonna pull it out when it happens, but throughout the rest of these chapters, she's like on the verge of passing out whenever she has to actually use her body. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Bullet holes are not something to shrug off. No, no. Uh so they're all talking on the phones, on the comms, and when Luxie mentions that her camera's broke, Chris kind of gives her a hard time about it. Um it which culminates in a great line from Kenzie. I, I didn't weaponize the cameras, I weaponized the off switch, obviously obviously um, and so like at first i think the first time i read this i just i just kind of read it as like oh chris has given her a hard time because he always gives her a hard time but then i kind of was like well actually i, I find this fascinating because this specifically here scans as vigilance like he, he's he wants more information he's not at first he's not just ragging on her he's he's seeking clarification which is very consistent with how a form called uh, keen vigilance would behave yeah that's a, a really good point i i kind of forgot that that was um the form he was channeling but when i went back and, and read it um kenzie specifically says like stop it with the vigilance <laughs> and i was like oh yeah um last week i mentioned that chris's like antagonizing of kenzie might have been a form of like jealousy over her involvement and his lack of involvement in some of the part of the stuff. And I'm not so sure of that anymore. Um, because we see in this moment that Kenzie just mentions that her camera's broke. 
which is like the halfest half truth ever. <laughs> um, and it's only because of Chris's pestering and vigilance that Kenzie admits what happened, admits what she did. And so so you could read this pestering. You could read Chris's kind of constant involvement in her as as um, maybe in his vigilance form, he is seeing things that the rest of the team isn't. And he's concerned and is kind of like checking up on her and keeping track of her and what she's doing. And so I, I think this is less um, less jealousy motivated and more. Um, hey, I'm concerned and I'm showing my concern in the most Chris way ever, which is to be pestering and sarcastic. Yeah, I, I love that read, actually. Um, I think there's a very good case to be made that Chris actually does care about Kenzie and is just very Chris about showing it. Yeah. So, yeah. So Victoria finally cites some of the mutated animals, a grotesque, grotesquely muscled man with a pig head and a horse with a human face. Victoria approaches them cautiously and speaks to them relatively kindly. They shy away from Chris when he arrives, which is a fun touch because he's so monstrous that these monsters can't even handle it. It's pretty awful though, right? I mean, yeah, like these poor people, like we don't really know. We don't really even fully understand how this works, but it seems like he just has done terrible things to these people who, feel like they have to follow orders or, or are being controlled. I'm not sure how the power works, but see, I, I thought it was even more twisted and, and Cronenbergian uh, that these were farm animals that he had like stolen some vestige of humanity from some people permanently and then implanted it in the farm animals. Jesus. So like there, not only are these farm animals like just sentient enough to be in pain. Um, but now there are some people wandering around with some of their humanity, like, pulled away from them oh my god fuck the fallen so much <laughs> kill them all just, just all of them just do yes. it <laughs> we've finally broken scott <laughs> he's on nuke the side from orbit team do it it's the only way to be sure yeah so tattletale finally calls in on their channel to try to warn them off from pursuing rain any further and, he, and she says uh, your friend rain is done for he was always going to be done for um but then tattletale does tell them where he is and she says, this is me being nice again, but you don't care. Um, which, like, why would she tell them that if, you know, if if it's against her best interest? Like, well, what do we make of her motives here? I, I don't know. Like, out of all the mysteries of the story so far, Tattletale is, like, the hardest one to crack. And I think that's very intentional. Not only is, is Tattletale, like, intentionally a shifty, dishonest type person but our point of view character has just this base level of distrust for her that translates into this basic assumption that everything that she says is not true everything um so it's really really hard to read tattletale's true motivation behind any of this stuff i think we, we learn a little bit more next chapter so maybe we'll save like the diving into what's tattletale doing conversation when we learn that stuff um, but I think we're also going to learn a bunch more in the next chapter. I think it's what the end of uh, 6.5 seems to, to indicate at least. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know. I don't know. The answer is I have no idea what she's doing. Um, she's she's working on some other level. Um, it, it doesn't make sense that if she truly wanted Cradle to be safe and not uh, not attacked, why she would tell tell Victoria where he is. Yeah, I mean, she could have just checked out of this whole exchange and just let things play out. And I, 
Yeah, I, uh, there's definitely a game here, but but like you mm-hmm. said, I think we just don't know enough yet. Yep. So they all go to the barn, and uh, the text states, the rain was only a trickle now. This is one of those moments where I, I read this on my third read-through and was like, we got to we gotta pull this quote out and talk yeah. about it. And then I went to the script and saw that you did it already, and I was like, yes, same page. Um, yeah. It's it's this great little tiny thing that the, the rain is dying down as... The rain is dying yeah. down. Yeah, no, I mean, like, there were a bunch of mentions of what the rain is doing throughout these chapters, and I didn't right. pull out every every one. But, yeah, I mean, it follows that thing you pointed out last, I, I believe it was last week, where the rain kind of comes on when rain arrives on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. And now, as rain's blood is leaking out, the rain was only a trickle. Yep. Just fun little symbolism moments. Mm-hmm. Isn't writing awesome? I just yes. love it. I love yeah. stories. I love what stories can do. <laughs> I love uh, everything about this. Yes. So Rain's fallen captors have been butchered, along with a number of the mutant animals. Cradle is in the rafters of the barn, riding his huge hand crab robot. Another guy with a red handprint on his mask and a cleaver is with Cradle. Sveta is damaged, holding a grievously injured Rain. I love how this scene is set that the blood the death sveta in one corner like we see her and she's like beaming hate like she, she's looking at at cradle and the other guy with like this this intense hatred that breaks as soon as she sees victoria like she sees victoria and this hatred breaks like there's this moment where you think sveta might break and and break her code that her desire not to hurt people and then victoria shows up and this relief washes over her face like she's like oh thank god i'm not gonna have to do this more people are here um and it's so good and the the what remained of rain we don't we don't even see the injuries yet we just get this phrase what remained of rain like there's not even enough to just call him rain just what remained of him it's just a perfect way to set the stage for everything that happens in the next chapter yeah, that definitely gave me the sense that he was in pieces, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, made me happy to learn he was only just horribly mutilated. Just, yeah, um, ha- happy. Yeah, right, happy. So the uh, the chapter ends with, "Let's not make this a thing." Cradle said, "It was going to be a thing." Yeah, and this is a great way to end it. I'm not a huge fan of like cliffhangers most of the time, but. I think this one works pretty well um, because it's like we have a we we, the the stage is set. We know the stakes. Everything is defined. We're not like cutting it off in the middle of that. Um, It it just I think it works here where a lot of times cliffhangers just annoy me where it's like they feel artificial. This doesn't feel like an artificial cutoff. Yeah, no, like uh, that's the thing. Like it being a web serial, it has the cutoff somewhere. And this seems like a good place to do it if you if if you got to make it you know if you got to put if you got to stop somewhere right yeah it's not like it wasn't a long chapter yeah speaking of we move in to 6.5 and victoria looks over the scene she describes rain's injuries he's slashed very deeply many times apparently by the cleaver cape um who will shortly learn is operator red a combat thinker i get some better names operator red come on <laughs> this is like um what was the eraser guy's name again? Oh man, I can't even remember. I really should know this, wow. considering how many times I've seen Eraser. We've we were we're supposed to know these things anyway. Um, 
I love uh, how this chapter opens, Matt. I, I, I like it so much. Um, this, this opening line here, the weather had relaxed some, but the barn we were in had a corrugated metal roof, and each drop that hit it snapped against the hard, hollow surface. The sound was like a dull static, punctuated by rain's gasp. The word choice here is so wonderfully selected to to convey the gravity of the situation the 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 tenseness of the situation the raindrops snapping against the surface of the roof the 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 dull static feeling it feels uncomfortable it feels dire it feels loud and cacophonous and terrible and i just i love how it's done i like it so much yeah yeah the the chapter intros have been on point uh Mm -hmm. for the last several um, yeah so Victoria joins Sveta and gets to, to helping with the first aid for Rain. Rain is at least aware enough to see that she's there. When Red mentions leaving, Victoria tells them that she doesn't intend on letting them walk away from this. The scene kind of continues like this with her trying to dialogue with the villains while performing first aid. She eventually uses the golden belt of her angelic raiment as a tourniquet to staunch the bleeding of the ex-demon ex, uh, boy. Um, Symbolism. That's, that's symbolism. Symbolism. Um, and then we get this line from Cradle, which I think is very interesting, where he's trying to justify himself, trying to argue um, for why he it was okay to do this. And he says, when the bad guy is shitty enough, it stops being revenge and starts being justice. Yeah. So Matt... It's a pretty interesting moral argument that it would be fun to to parse for a little bit here. Um, in our world, if you do a bad thing, you are punished for it. And in some cases, in some states, if the thing is so bad, they put you to death for it. And the state doesn't consider that revenge. They call that justice. And let's say a man is sitting on death row for 40 years and in that time, he's found God. He's found religion. He's he's earnestly recognized the error of his ways, and he has chosen to live whatever remaining years he has left, um, being a good person and trying to do good things in in the ways that he can. And then the state kills him. Is that is that justice? Is that revenge? How? What does that look like? And I think like. I ask these questions and they're almost rhetorical because I don't think I don't know if there's a, a clear answer here. But I think what the what Ward is trying to do here is challenge our understanding of these terms through this character. And and really, um, I think it makes a pretty clear it comes down pretty clearly on a side by the end of this whole thing. But in this moment, we're kind of being challenged. Is that true? Is it true? Like if someone's so bad, so heinous, so awful and the things they do are so bad, does that does that stop being revenge at some point? Does it? Yeah. I mean, I I think the text is clearly asking us to confront these questions and, and to, to ask whether cradle might be right here or if he's not right. I mean, that, that, that's kind of what's interesting is he's, we're strongly biased against him at this point in time, but what he's advocating for is not much different from what our society actually does. And Mm -hmm. so, um, if you're against cradle, are you against criminal justice system? Right, because in in our world, if a boy 
walks up to a mall and chains a door shut and it gets lit on fire. The the defense can't be like, well, I mean, he felt really bad about it afterwards and he promises he won't ever do it again. I mean, that's good. But like <laughs> our justice system still says, hey, you got to be punished for that. Yeah. But what is the correct punishment? And, and this is I mean, obviously, Cradle takes it to an extreme that is totally like beyond what what someone called justice. And I think, yes, we are we are seeing that that Cradle is himself hypocritical and we'll see that throughout this. But the 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 basis of his argument is an interesting one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually kind of anticipate there being some interesting discussion about this exact moment. It's going to be our discussion question. Yeah, that's Spoilers. that's why Spoilers. that's why I anticipate that. Uh, yeah, but yeah, Cr- Cradle gets ph- philosophical about it. I mean, he, he says he, he wants them to just let let him walk away. Let this be the end of it, because otherwise it's going to turn into a cycle of violence. Of course, this principle doesn't apply to him in his mind, because what Rain did was so bad that this isn't revenge. This is justice. This is not just him, you know, continuing the cycle of violence. Yeah. Yeah. It's always great to have a person say revenge is bad after they've gotten their revenge. It's very, it's very convenient. Um, the thing that I love about the argument is that cradle isn't necessarily wrong. Um, revenge is cyclical. This will be a cycle that will pull more people into it and, and beget more violence. And, uh, it, it will, it will encourages a cycle of death and violence and revenge and, He's right where he errors is in his assumption that his actions are somehow immune from the cycle of revenge, um, that, that he is somehow above it and better than it is where he's wrong. And he actually seems to believe it, too. It's not just right. it's not just something he's telling them to persuade them. That's kind of his own inner rationale. Yeah. Plus, he goes on to say things like everyone we've told the story to has agreed it's fair, it being what they're doing. And, and that's what he claims. But. <laughs> I'm wondering how they told the story, right? I'm sure they told the part about him locking the door, about him laughing as people burned. I'm sure they left out the part where Rain was brainwashed for years, where Mama Mathers was constantly watching him, where where he um, since has realized that he was he was part of a terrible system and has tried to tried to move away from it the best he could. I'm sure they left all that part out. Right. And they were probably, you know, telling this story to mercenaries and murderers in the first place yeah which i mean if you look at if you look at tattletale to to swing back to our what is tattletale doing question um tattletale is not a morally perfect human being but if you go up to tattletale and say hey this guy um burned a bunch of people alive in a mall can you help us take him out that seems like a reasonable request right and and also they, they probably didn't add like oh by the way he's like 15 or something right I mean, I don't actually remember exactly how old he is, but but like, yeah, in our world, he would be considered a minor, even if, you know, we That's would true. punish him, but we wouldn't yeah. execute him. Yeah. Except maybe in some states. Moving on. Uh, so Chris approaches and we get a description of what keen vigilance looks like. Bulbous with a with big dark eyes, armor plates and coarse hair, a long snout with side set eyes. Uh, and blades of mingled bone and steel secreted among the armor plates. I, I love Chris. I, yeah. lo- I love Chris so much. Can't wait for fan art of this one. I'm sure it already exists, actually. 
Uh, we learn a bit of important background about Rain, that he turned himself in, he talked to people about it as much as he could, and that's how he got into therapy. And I like that because I've, I've actually wondered, like, how did he get into this therapy situation in the first place? And that's kind of, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. But it's something that Cradle refuses to believe. Like, he doesn't accept it. Like, his response is, oh, he told you that, huh? And, and we know for a fact that it's true because how else... How else would he have teamed up with this therapy group? Right. right. Like th- that this obviously actually happened, but he can't admit it to him. Rain will always be this kid who ruined his life. This this evil monster. He can't see past that image of the person that wronged him. And this is all starting to sound really familiar, isn't it? Yes, as we'll see. So as Victoria patches up Rain's extravagant wounds, it strikes me that Rain would be super dead right now, just like all of the fallen mooks who were lying around if Operator Red had just tried to cut his jugular instead of, you know, cutting him up so that he could die slowly and painfully, which were the orders. So he's alive and, and he lives through this because the objective was to torture him to death and not just kill him. Yeah, that's totally justice, right? That's what, yeah. that's what that is. Right. Definitely justice. Total justice. Uh, so Chris gets annoyed with their ham-fisted attempts at saving Rain, and he offers some of his private stash of coagulants. And as they're as they're digging through the Tupperwares, he says, "Careful what you touch." And then he explains, "One day I change, come apart instead of changing back," um, which is really not something we heard of at all before, and nope. makes me wonder if it's something that Chris is afraid of happening, or something that happens regularly, or what exactly. Yeah, it's really mysterious either way, and. Chris is like quickly becoming my favorite character on the team. Um, There's there's so much still we need to learn about him. But the things we do know are fascinating. He has to live with these mental and physical mutations and the inherent risks that go along with them. And he seems always prepared, always smart, like he's he's ready for all these things. He's ready for all these eventual outcomes. And he actually takes it all very, very seriously because there's even a moment after they use the coagulant on rain that like everyone's fighting and he's like, no, you got to put the needle back in the case. Cause I actually need this shit. It's really important for me. And like, he comes off as this sarcastic, like kid that like pokes at people and, and is annoying, but man, he's complicated. Yeah. And, and he's competent too, as we'll yeah. see. He, he's actually very effective in this fight, even considering who he's up against. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So this act of injecting the coagulant prompts operator to attack meaning that Chris's Boy Scoutliness here with the coagulant is what saves Rain, because before that, they were just going to let him bleed out, and now it's obvious that they're kind of turning it around, so, that, so that's why the villains attack. Yeah, which uh, which is what betrays Cradle's true hypocrisy here, right? Like, revenge is bad, don't, don't attack me because you must stop the cycle of revenge. Wait, he might live? Oh shit, uh, we gotta fight you now. Yeah, like right. that's the that's the true hypocrisy of it. That it's, come on, dude. Yeah, I agree. So begins this battle. So Operator Red first fights Chris and Capricorn, and then later goes after Vista, who is eventually able to keep him effectively stymied for most of the battle by warping the terrain around him and just keeping him away from people. Cradle at first holds back, and then eventually starts fighting Victoria. He uses his ev- invisible attack, which turns out eventually to be invisible force-infused cables that extend from the fingers of one of his hands, uh, the giant robot hands, I should say. Luxie then 
overlays the cables with a red after image so Victoria can basically see them and avoid them. Yeah, this is all really cool. And once again, we've kind of rushed through it, but I like how structurally the information regarding the force infused cables is doled out to us it's really fun to to look at this specifically um, because we start out with he swiped a hand in my general direction coming almost 10 feet shy of connecting i put the wretch up anyway i glanced at what was happening below and then something hit me like a truck knocking the wretch out and knocking me almost 20 feet through the air before I could write myself. So we, we see here like cradle swings and completely misses 10 feet away. And it's only kind of dumb luck that Victoria says, I'm going to put the wretch up anyway. Um, and then she looks away from the battle. So she's, 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 he missed. I'm going to focus my attention somewhere else because he missed so badly. And then bam. And both Victoria and the reader are then forced to be like, what the hell was that? And it, it gets you into the situation where you're like, what is going on? And, it's a great way to introduce and then slowly reveal what what Cradle is actually doing here. And I, I do also like that bit where, where it's like this kind of Victoria Kenzie combination idea to figure out how to let them see what this thing is. It's all in all, I think it's just a really smartly written scene. Yeah. And this is one of the ones that I just blew through the first time through because there's something about like invisible weapon where you're just like, oh, my God, I have to figure out what's going on. This is so this is so tense. Any, it could be anything. It could be anything. Yeah. yeah, the first time I read it, I actually thought that um, the hands were attached to invisible wires from him. So he was just beating them with the hands, but they couldn't see the wires attaching them. And that, I was like, well, what is, I don't understand that. Um, and that was just because I was reading it very fast on my first read through. Yeah, so, somehow I think I had a similar misconception, but I, uh, it does. It, it's, a, it's a misconception that makes no sense because the writing... It's very clear. Oh, it's very <laughs> clear. It's very clear. It just, I think it's just literally skipping paragraphs because yeah. you're reading too fast or yeah. skimming paragraphs. Yeah. Yeah. So they're not making much, or Victoria is not making much headway in fighting Cradle. And Victoria goads him verbally, pointing out that he left himself off when he was listing all of Rain's crimes. Cradle finally becomes emotional and explains, He took me from me. And Victoria immediately relates to this idea. And Cradle goes on, He infected me. And now I'm different. He violated myself. And of course, uh, um, Victoria's mind immediately, automatically moves to defend Rain. And she thinks to herself, it was upbringing, really questionable upbringing. Sometimes, or even a lot of the time, he was in a bad place, desperate, with nobody to turn to. He regrets it. He's trying to do better. He's, he was willing to turn himself in, even though that wasn't what Cradle wanted or needed. He didn't want any of this any more than Cradle did. It wasn't him that screwed with Cradle like that. It was the power acting according to some alien programming. And and then and then she says and then she ends the thought with no. And of course, the reason why is that all of these lines could be perfectly without any change other than the gender pronoun be applied to her sister. Perfectly. Almost as if her thought process was constructing them to make that link. Yeah. Because it's just perfect. Yeah. And she can't say any of it because as she thinks it would compromise her integral self. Wow. So this is, I think my favorite spot in the book. Um, mm -hmm. And I think this is the most important part in the book. This, this realization. Um, and, and we have to go back to, to parse this. Comparing Rain and Amy is not 
is something that Victoria has done before. Um, the, the time when he kind of came out to the group and told them who he was and what happened, um, she made a direct connection to Amy's realization of where she came from and this this deep secret that Amy had and reflected it in this deep secret that that Rain has. Um, and, and and she kind of saw it as this, this comparison. And, and I think back then you and I said, because Victoria is is making a direct line between Rain and Amy, um, Rain could kind of serve as a test case for her. Um, if she can get herself to a place where she's okay and she can deal with what he did, um, perhaps, perhaps one day there's a chance that she will be able to get herself to move past the things that Amy did to her. And, and we, we said that at that time, and then we got to see Victoria kind of reconcile with Rain, right? Like, she seemed to uh, understand and, and process what he did, and possibly got herself to a place where she was okay with it. And, and perhaps, um, perhaps she didn't fully understand what it was that Rain had done, that, that she didn't fully make those, connect those dots fully yet, but she does here she makes this connection now and dot by dot argument by argument constructed sentence by constructed sentence she she draws the link between the two of them everything that she said about rain is true about amy everything but she can't say that she can't say it and she can't even connect those last two dots and finish that whole picture she because she never says amy's name here she never even consciously thinks about amy in fact she consciously rejects it she says no one word one paragraph a line by itself to emphasize it here on the page no i am not going to go there i am not going to make that connection to do so would risk her integral self her very understanding of herself and her place and the things that happened to her and the people that did them to her she's just not ready to deal with that yet yeah, I love the use of this word integral, integral self. And I wonder mm-hmm. if I'm overinterpreting here, but is the implication that this is a, a, a self that she has put together by integrating different kind of rational, rationalizations or interpretations of, you know, what happened to her so that she has this narrative and what this is actually a threat to is it's a threat to that, that integration. It's a threat to that narrative. Um, in which case, I think she'd be exactly right. It's just the truth is that that it, that narrative probably needs to be challenged, and she's in the process yeah. of doing so. Actually, well, when someone does something terrible to you, awful, the worst thing you can imagine, the the only way you can process how someone will be capable of doing that kind of thing is if you kind of other them and make them into a monster, mm-hmm. because then it makes sense. Why, why would someone do this to me? Because they're evil. They're a monster. They're terrible. And so this idea that maybe it's just a combination of all these factors, a combination of all these things that, that built up that many of which are out of that person's control. She can't handle that yet. She can't deal with that yet. It, 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 it's too much too soon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love that. I love it so much. And I think my favorite part of all this, though, my, my the most like heartwarming part of all this to me, though, 
is that even with that realization, even connecting the dots, even um, realizing this this connection between Rain and Amy and and rejecting that connection out of like fear of destroying her integral self. She still has to save Rain. She still has to stop Cradle because, yeah, Rain and Amy have a lot in common. And yeah, Victoria and Cradle as their victims do, too. But they're not the same. Victoria Dallin is a fucking hero. A hero who says that letting Rain die, a person that did to this man the same thing that Amy, the person she hates almost more than anything in the world, did to her, letting him die, that would violate my integral self too. Just as much. More. Because Victoria, despite all of her issues, can see what Cradle cannot, that, that this is not justice. This is revenge. And it's just wrong. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's th- th- like you said, this is a beautiful story moment. I, I, I guess I haven't ranked the, the moments in my head, but this is definitely one of my favorite moments because it's cutting right to the core of her. It's, it's pinpointing exactly one of her vulnerabilities and putting her in a position where she would be sorely tempted to say, oh, oh, I, I get it. Yeah, this guy's right. This guy's this guy is justified. And the part of her that is a hero proves to be the stronger part. And despite the fact that she she gets it, she can't she can't let him get away. Yep. It's wonderful. I love I love Victoria so much. Yeah, me too. So now Cradle begins to do something complicated with the cables involving several of the giant tinker hands and finally several pages too late i get his name cradle as in cat's cradle yeah um it's a it took me a few times reading the chapter and prepping my notes um and reading you writing that down before i made that connection (laughs) hey we're we're good at our jobs yeah that's why we do so many read-throughs yes so Capricorn and Sveta start lobbing chunks of Capricorn stone and then flashing it back and forth between water and rock so that it kind of gums up the robot and just makes a huge hassle for uh, for Cradle. This puts enough pressure on him that uh, Chris can kind of sneak up and start applying pressure. And also so Kenzie can pull off her, her gambit, which involves moving the projected cables such that Cradle dodges an attack that isn't real. And then Victoria is able to grab him and kind of just toss him somewhere where he won't be much of a problem. And having done this and suitably threatening him, he calls off the combat tinker. This is motherfucking teamwork, yo. Yeah. Um, this is I, I think I think that's that's what this is a perfect reflection of is that because all of these guys are now working together, working in sync. It's so funny because at the beginning of the battle, we talked about how Victoria felt that she felt a certain amount of frustration that she like didn't know what her teammates were thinking that um she couldn't react to their unspoken plans because she didn't really know them yet and now we're here chapters and chapters later and they kind of just construct this entire way of defeating him without a lot of speaking between them i mean there's like some short lines like she she literally just says to kenzie can you see what he's doing and then they concoct this plan and then uh sveta and and capricorn just do this thing and Kenzie comes up with this plan and they're all just kind of in sync now without really communicating that with each other. And that's pretty great. 
yeah, and, and I, I kind of just like to follow Chris as he's doing his own thing on the sidelines and darting around and crawling up and just just constantly being a thorn in the guy's side. Right. I don't want to exclude him from it either because he is he is very much distracting the uh, the combat thinker who could be fucking their entire world up. Yeah, I guess the thing to say about Chris maybe is that it seems like um, Victoria and Kenzie are actually communicating. Sveta and Tristan are communicating. Chris isn't really communicating with anyone. He's just taking opportunities, which is a fine, you know, role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now Tattletail breaks in on the call and admits that, yes, she did lead those bad guys to reign. There's no point in denying it at this point. But she really wants them to leave Cradle alone, uh, but they won't. Um, and there's really interesting behavior from Tattletail through these chapters. Like we've said, she's, she's like really wants them to leave Cradle alone. She's promising to help in chasing down the escaping Crowleys if they'll let Cradle go. She'll help them get March and, and Prancer to help, too. Um, yeah, just really wants them to let Cradle go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so much so that, like, whatever whatever she's doing, Cradle is integral to that somehow. Because, like, I will do, I will go out of my way, do everything I can. Just please, please don't let him go. Yeah. Uh, or, or please, yes, let him go. Please do not take him into custody. Do not leave him with, uh, with the Fallen. Like, I need, I need him. I need yeah. him. Um, and yeah, I, I don't think this really gives us too many clues into what she's doing. Um, she talks about how she's worried about the bigger picture. She talks about how the Fallen and and specifically the Crowley band of them are way more influential than any that anyone really knew. Um, it, it's tough. It's tough to know what to think here, man. And I because I think we have to acknowledge kind of our worm driven biases around this thing because I like tattletale i've always liked tattletale and we you have my perspective as the reader coming in liking her butting heads with victoria's perspective as i don't trust anything this person says i am convinced that they are terrible and are lying to me constantly and it's kind of like how do you parse this i i don't i don't know what to think yeah um i think you know even we might be tempted to think Tattletale is lying or exaggerating things if we hadn't had a recent chapter from from Citrine where she kind of hinted at, um, if I remember correctly, she hinted that the Fallen might be kind of a bigger threat than people realized. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I I don't don't really have much to add there other than, like, we, we know Tattletale is being truthful. Victoria doesn't believe her, and we also get why she doesn't believe her. Um, or at least she's she's mistrustful of her. She's not. Um, yeah. Just... Well, it doesn't it doesn't help that Tattletail has to like fucking rib her with things constantly where she's like, um, this is the kind of thinking that gets one institutionalized, which yeah. is just a great word usage to use on Victoria. I mean, really going to win her over to your side with that one Tattletail. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> she can't stop. It's like on the one hand, she's being like almost plaintive, like like almost begging and just offering like quite a lot. And then on the other hand, she's like, let me say the worst possible thing I can say to this person. Yeah, yeah. Just just pick out the one word that I know is going to piss her off and just slide that right in between the ribs. Just- yeah. So now uh, just kind of hitting this beat of Victoria's progression uh, Kenzie asks regarding Rain, is he really that bad? I don't know, I said. I wasn't willing to spare the time to check either. But if this doesn't work, I didn't finish the sentence. And then she thinks, if this, does, if this doesn't work, thinking about all the responses I couldn't give Cradle, 
would I be willing to try another route? Another healer? And uh, <laughs> there's some progress there. Yeah, uh, no, no coincidence, I think, that this comes after Victoria's huge kind of internal realization. Um, I, I would not be surprised if, despite the rejection of that line of thinking in the moment, we see Victoria really start to battle internally and push internally against um, her own conclusions regarding Amy and what happened and, and what she did and how much she's responsible for and, and how much she should continue to hate her for it. Um, I, I think I think that's going to be something we're going to see more and more as we go. And this is a step of it that that she even posits, however briefly, to to tap her sister for help if she if she can't get healing for someone. And I think like it seems like that's the obvious thing we're building to, right? It seems like there's going to be a situation where the only choice is to go to Amy for help and whether Victoria will be willing to make that choice or not, uh, we will see. But it it seems like the obvious path to go, which means it might not be the one, but um I, I kind of kind of wondered going into this big big war if that's where we were going to go that someone was going to be hurt so bad that hey we got to the only hope the only hope is to go to Amy. Yeah, it's definitely interesting that it got to the point where she was willing to consider it and it forces you to wonder um would she have had to go that way would she have gone that way if if the healer, you know, if the advance guard healer wasn't available? Right. Um, and, I, and we're not I don't 100% think, I don't, sure. I don't think she's ready. I mean, I think the best she would do is like drop him off with someone that could do it. I, I don't think she could do it. But then again, what if she's the only one? She can yeah. fly. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah. Or, or, or what if what if her sister's like, I'll only do this if you ask me personally, you know? <laughs> yeah. I don't think that would help the relationship if she's like if she's that that restrictive on it. Yeah, right. I'll save this this dude's life, but only if you specifically ask me to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That'll that'll really really bring them back together, you know? Yeah. Really good good best foot forward. Yeah, yeah. So now having defeated the villains, Victoria leaves to find the advanced guard healer. She stumbles upon Prancer who is without velvet or moose, looking quite dark, seeming a little bit broken. He does point the way, and she finds the healer, and it's Scapegoat. Uh, so for those of you who don't necessarily mainline this stuff like we do, Scapegoat was the healer who repaired Taylor's blindness, lung damage, and several months of accrued horrible injuries during the Echidna fight, uh, but his power requires that he take on the injuries of the person he's healing, more or less. I'm glad yeah. you remembered to do that thing we always promise to do, but always forget to do. Yeah, it's... It's so hard. Um, but Scott, Scapegoat, is a traitor. He went fallen. Say say it ain't so, Scapegoat. Yeah. I'm now so I, shocked that this guy would have waffly morals. <laughs> now I feel way less bad about the fact that he has to take on the injuries himself. Yeah. Good, Scapegoat. Good. Yeah. yeah, it's still one end of world and betrayal later, and he's still getting stuck taking on a ton of pain and discomfort when people ask him to heal people. That's Good. funny. Yeah. Good. Yeah. In in case that reference I just made wasn't clear, the only reason he helped Taylor was that he was already basically corrupt. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. So Tattletail <laughs> supplies what Scapegoat needs to hear to actually go through with the healing. So once again, Tattletail proves clutch. The theme of this arc so far is side characters giving clutch performances. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Uh, there's a few important beats that I think we need to at least reference here. I don't have a lot to discuss with them, but they're, I think they're important character beats. Um, Victoria first is entirely resistant to the idea of being healed by someone like scapegoat sees the, the, the bullet wound in her arm and says, Oh, you need healing. And she's like, it'll heal naturally. Wonder why she doesn't like people using their healing powers on her. Right. And the, the second one is that Victoria, before she will let scapegoat heal rain, she needs his direct consent. She says specifically, I need you to say yes to this or I will not let him do it. Um, and I wonder why she needs that to happen too. Yeah. It's almost as if someone healed her without her consent. Yeah. And it made me wonder what would have happened if rain was actually just completely passed out at that point. I know that would be another interesting kind of, uh, moral dilemma for our hero. Yeah. Yeah. Dodged. Thanks for staying up long enough to give consent rain. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's really good at uh, that's that's a minor power that he has we haven't heard about. It's the ability to remain <laughs> conscious without any blood in his body. <laughs> so okay, so now that we know, or at least it certainly seems like Rain is not going to be dying here, I'm curious, did you think it was gonna go this way? The the first chapter left on a, a kind of cliffhanger where we're not sure if Rain is like doomed or not. And I, I'm curious what you were expecting. So, so you and I talked about this at the end of, or after reading the first chapter, and and I said, fifty fifty. I I literally said, I think, mm-hmm. I think it could go either way. I, I literally predict fifty percent odds that he's dead, fifty percent odds he's alive. So, so I guess I'm not surprised that he's alive. But I, I like the story was at a point, his character was at a point uh, where I felt like it was very plausible that he would be dead. Yeah, I think I was 60 40, um, 60 being alive, 40 being dead. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you're absolutely right. It, it feels like there was more to do with him. There's there's more going on with this cluster. But the more I thought about it, the more I think you could explore the cluster uh, without him necessarily needing to be there. Um, yeah. So I, I think it absolutely would have worked with him uh, dead. I, I think I probably would have felt really like sad and despondent about it if he was dead and and like which which is kind of kind of what you want to, to accomplish with the story <laughs> mm-hmm. when you kill someone but but also like like you said when it feels like there was more to be done with the character you're just like oh well that just seems like a wasted opportunity so yeah i'm glad he's not dead and and like yeah. i don't like i was thinking about it beforehand even i was like so if he does live through something like this it, like am i gonna feel like the stakes are reduced and and i'm like no actually no because i i wanted him to live so this is actually a relief and it doesn't really affect my belief that characters can die in the story do we have to have another conversation about death and stakes and how you don't have to have people die to d- define stakes in the story um we 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 may at some point scott but i'm gonna um, have to i'm just gonna not, not today that's on my on my tombstone it's gonna be i'm dead do it do i have stakes now yeah you bastards you care about this now <laughs> i just it's just funny. such a it's such a lazy argument i i uh anyway yeah. anyway let's move on yeah so here um ashley now arrives on the scene and while victoria feels like a smile would be inappropriate in this context uh that kind of suggests that seeing ashley makes her want to smile involuntarily and uh that's very bulbasaur yeah, I saw you put the, the you wrote Bulba here, which uh-huh. is meaningless for anyone that's not on our Discord. Um, 
You all know what I mean. Yeah. I, yeah, I think Victoria's kind of proud of Ashley in this moment, right? Um, and I am too. And I, I love their little awkward wave. Like, I want to smile, but that doesn't seem right. So it's just like a, hey, how's it going? Yeah. Yeah. My my new BFF is here, but I'm self-conscious yeah. about it. So I'm just gonna, I'm going to acknowledge her, but not in a way that makes it weird. Mm-hmm. Thereby making it way more weird. Yeah, of course. So the chapter wraps up with Victoria telling Luxy to let Tattletail know that she'll consider working together. Big move. Yep. But first she needs to find out what the fuck is going on here. That's right. That's right. And, yeah. I, and I say, me too. Yes. <laughs> Spill it, Tattletail. All right. So moving on to name game. Uh, cradle. So I was wondering what cradle means. For the for longest whole time. Yeah. yeah was... real, real long time. Like, like, cause for snag, we kind of had to figure something out eventually, uh, which, you know, very abstract kind of, I was expecting cradle to be similarly abstract where it's like, well, maybe he's carrying something, which I think is probably, yeah. you know, on that level, that kind of makes sense. Like he's, he's, his, his robot is a cradle that carries yeah, him, carrying him and he's carrying some kind of grudge. But also, the whole point of his robot is that it does a cat's cradle with invisible magic force cables. Yep. So. Pretty cool. Solved. We have solved the cradle puzzle. Okay, now you can die, cradle. I mean, what? No. <laughs> um, okay, so discussion question, Scott? Yeah, so like we hinted at earlier, um, let's talk about justice and revenge. Let's talk about what are the difference between the two things and um, how do you think the the story effectively communicates um, that 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 philosophy? Um, yeah, and and I, I like I don't want to I don't want to get too far into the specifics of the scenario here because I absolutely think the story comes pretty far down on um, what Cradle is talking about is not justice. I think that the story is pretty definitive in that. But I let's let's be a little more abstract about it. Um, yeah. Because you can you can nudge the scenario around by changing minor details and right. and that's kind of why it's worth thinking about. Yeah, I mean the the whole torture and and bleed out slowly part of the thing is really really a, a strike against it being justice. <laughs> yes, I agree. So, yeah, just explore that a little bit, and I I think I think that's what the text is asking us to do. So, yeah, let's do it. Sounds good. And uh, yeah, that's it. That's all we got for you this week on We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this show, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85 and Matt's is at catscradle mordenamail. That's right. If you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. But still not Spotify, sadly. Or iHeartRadio. Wait, that's a thing? Yeah. <laughs> okay. It sucks. <laughs> As always, you can find this, all the other podcasts we do, and all of our writing, essays, film, and TV criticism, and more at dailyplanetfilms.com. This week, over on the main Daily Planet channel, we've assembled a crack team of podcasters to review Avengers Infinity War. 
Also, on Vow to View, our other show, Elise and I celebrate Teacher Appreciation Week with some of our favorite teacher movies. I picked School of Rock because Jack Black is hilarious, and uh, Elise picked Dead Poet Society because it's a great movie. Awesome. Can't wait to listen to that. And, and I would mention that, that the, uh, the Infinity War podcast was the greatest crossover in podcasting history because we had Steven Zuber of the Bayesian Conspiracy podcast on with us. Yeah, one of those rationality podcasts. That's right. It's so rational. Yes, it was a very rational discussion. It was. So if you like... Infinity War of, is great. Infinity War is great, by the way, incidentally, on this superhero <laughs> podcast we're doing right now. Um, if you like any of these other shows that we do and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash dailyplanetfilms. If uh, you can donate a, a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford, supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in our quarterly fan art contests, Q&A sessions, access to live streams of our recording sessions like this one, and our excellent Discord chat. Special thanks to new Planeteers Liam, Thiago, Sarek, all at the $1 level, Andre, Andre sorry, at the $2 level, and Trevor at the $5 level. And new Kryptonian frustrated free Buddha who has upgraded to the twenty dollar level. Thanks so much, everyone. We really appreciate that. Um, it's it's it just feels great to know that uh, people are willing to 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 support us like that. Yeah, Matt, we're getting we're getting dangerously close to the the Stephen King podcast. No, no, <laughs> gonna have to start really planning for that one. Yeah, on top of all the other stuff. I'm oh doing. God, goals are fun. Yeah. But- but it's like I, a treadmill it just yeah, starts going faster. I'm so excited, though. It's, yeah, me too. It's really exciting. Yeah. And as always, make sure you go over to Wildbo's Patreon and donate to him as well. This is his world. We're just playing in it. And if you cannot afford to donate right now, that's absolutely okay. You can instead help us out by heading on over to Apple Podcasts. I, I keep putting iTunes here in here. I've been told it's not. It's Apple Podcasts is what you're supposed to say. Ah. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. Uh, no new reviews to read this week, sadly. You're you're making Matt sad, guys. You're, you look how sad he is. Oh. You can't see him, but he's he's looking real sad right now. Oh, oh, all right. Well, that's it for the show this week. Next week, Arc Six continues. Okay, we need to leave the show on a little bit of a high note, Matt. Next week, Arc Six continues. All right.